Soccer Show and the glorious return of our listener questions. On today's show, we're looking at how Inter Miami are making the numbers work. We give a contextual assessment of Vlatko's national team reign and we ask why a professional player has the squad number 207. What a world. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who loves a listener question on a day ending in Y. Taylor Rockwell, hello. Hello, I do, and I really enjoy having discovered waking up early in the morning uh, because of the Women's World Cup. Uh, This would have been a thing that I think I was doing late last night. Instead, I was doing it early this morning while my daughter yelled at me to make the penguins happen and to make more cereal happen. So, a good mixture of those three things, and I'm excited to be here answering some questions. Okay, first question from me then. Mm -hmm. The penguin thing? Yeah. Uh, it's the Disney uh, documentary that's narrated by Ed Helms. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Ed Helms is not always my favorite. He is great in that one. It's a great documentary. She does not like the sea lions, though. We skip past that. Also not a big fan of the orcas. We skip past that part, too. Anytime the penguins are in any sort of mortal peril, she knows to skip ahead and just enjoy the cuteness parts. Oh, the penguins aren't averse to the orca uprising. That's good to hear, Taylor. Um, maybe they're the first line victim, front line victims of this, uh, in fact. She is, she is very confused why the penguins keep swimming in the water where the orcas are and it's a difficult concept to explain of like yeah they have to like we not everything has the luxury of avoiding uh dangerous dangerous things uh so hopefully she learns that that's the lesson is stay away as opposed to dive right in see my my four-year-old daughter also says or tells me to make the penguins happen but Mm -hmm. in the uk penguin is a chocolate biscuit and so that's what (laughs) it's also there's a great little clip of (laughs) benedict cumberbatch like either learning or revealing that he cannot pronounce that word. And so every time she pronounces it correctly, I just think she's she's better at English than Benedict Cumberbatch. And, and that's a nice penguin. thing to know. Penguin. Is I, think he, I think he says like penguin or something. Like he yeah. really can't do it. And it's kind of hilarious. And even after filming the documentary, he still can't do it. Yeah. Graham Norton did a whole thing on that indeed. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Gra- Graham Ruffin, you just heard his voice joining us. Now I'm picture, picturing Graham's daughter sitting like in a high wing back chair, slouching back saying, Make the penguins happen. <laughs> that that's pretty much spot on. I mean, my daughter is essentially a gangster. Can you tell that the nonsense has returned today? This is a nonsense Yay! episode. We've not done of these one done one of these in a while, and this is how we've uh, started it. <laughs> oh, to bring us back on the level, Joe Lowry, how are you today, my good man? I'm doing great. I've just been sitting here thinking if I ever end up sort of becoming a a adopted child in any of your families, I will be picking the Ruffin family because they're penguins. <laughs> no offense to your penguins, Taylor. Their penguins sound more enjoyable, more delicious, yeah. more delightful yeah. than your penguins, which are are not food at all. So I'm going mm. I'm going to be a Ruffin. I'm going to be a Ruffin. Yeah, oh, in well. Scotland we don't have any like forms of wildlife. It's just confectionery. That's so you know all, all the all the forms <laughs> of wildlife are actually just a another word for confectionery. Yeah. It says a lot about our diet. Wow. Deal. Okay, uh, uh, will you consider my adoption? Uh, the paperwork's nearly done, Joe. Um, uh, what's your penguin situation looking like, Ryan? Uh, healthy? <laughs> That's a weird sentence. I, don't... <laughs> I do like orcas. I do like orcas. I like going to the, you know... Actually, I used to like going to SeaWorld. I don't go there anymore, oh, I Joe, for, I for forgot the, I forgot this part of Ryan's personality. <laughs> the, the, the Sea Life Center aquarium part of Ryan's mm. existence. Mm. 
Let's move on, shall we? Lots of listener questions have come in today. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show, by the way, for all our bonus content. We've got bonus podcasts, bonus videos, access to our Discord, where all the cool kids are hanging out and talking about penguins, no doubt, after this uh, ramshackle intro to this listener questions <laughs> episode. Total Soccer Show, Patreon, Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show, I should say. Let's get to the listener questions. And by the way, another website for you, TotalSoccerShow.com slash questions. If you'd like to send us one, we would appreciate that. Trevor Peralta. Peralta has done just that. And he says, how bad does Vlatko's reign as USWNT coach stack up to all previous USWNT coaches? With other coaches who had talented and skilled national club teams and subsequently failed, who could he, how can he compare to them? I will love and continue to support your work, says Trevor. Thank you very much. Well, uh, Trevor's question is pertinent on this very day when reports suggest, Joe Lowry, that Vlatko has resigned from his post as USWNT coach as the 10th USWNT coach in yep. history. Mm. Yeah, it's felt timely, right? This is not a surprise. There were... 87,000 different reports last night confirming the previous 86,999 reports about what's going on with U.S. soccer and Vlako Andonovsky. Look, you, you can't go out there and, and come up short at the Olympics and finish third and then come out and get bounced earlier than ever before as a U.S. women's national team at the World Cup, losing in the round of 16 and, and expect to continue in your post. That was never going to happen for Vlako Andonovsky. So it's no surprise that he has moved on. Frankly, I think this makes the most sense for him. It sounds like, according to Meg Linehan's reporting, which is one of the only ones that I read about this particular topic, but there are others, I assure you. Uh, it sounds like Vlako already has interest from other national teams and club teams. I know who, uh, who? The who is current... interested after that tournament. I just don't understand I, that part. <laughs> Graham, I, I truly don't get it either, at least on the international side. Maybe, maybe the club level is what makes more sense for him, and we would see more advanced ideas and more effective management in a day-in and day-out kind of setting. What I was going to say is the Kansas City Current have been struggling and Vlatko has a lot of KC ties and maybe there's a connection there. Setting that aside, Vlatko, and I'll, I'll give my macro thoughts on this question, Vlatko does not compare favorably to a lot of past U.S. Women's National Team coaches. There have been others that have struggled, but certainly in recent history compared to the last several managers Vlatko is at or near the bottom. So I, I went and was doing some research on past results for different coaches. And based on sheer win percentage, Vlatko fared worse than all but one of the previous four coaches before him. So three out of four uh, did better than Vlatko coming into his time with the national team. Now, these numbers are from Wikipedia, so grain of salt there. They also apparently count draws as half of a win. My brain at 6 a.m. this morning was what? not smart what? enough to figure out how that works, <laughs> but I think it gives you a rough idea of the general success of these different managers. Jill Ellis, the, the person that Blacko came in afterwards, she won back-to-back World Cups, coaching the team from 2014 to 2019, an 87.5% win percentage compared to Blacko's 854 Tom Sermani, Graham's favorite, came in 2012 to 2014. U.S. soccer apparently was not happy with the direction of the program under him, which seems fair enough. He had an 83.3% winning uh, winning percentage. Pia Sundhag had a 89.7 win percentage. She won two Olympic golds and was a runner-up at a World Cup. And then Greg Ryan was was uh, finished third at the World Cup with the U.S. with a 90% win percentage. So I just on sheer numbers, Vlatko's tenure does not stack up particularly well and for folks that have watched a lot of this team and saw them in between the major tournaments not just at the major tournaments I don't think again it's a surprise that he's moving on 
Uh, yep, I would retweet everything Joe just said or retweet. I guess is what yep. we're doing now. Uh, that's fun. I should note uh, Wikipedia counting draws as half a win. The league's cup, I believe, counts them as two thirds of a win. So we're getting some interesting winning percentages today. <laughs> hang on, uh, hang Joe, on, I'd... stop it. Who, who's who's <laughs> doing this? Who's counting them this way? The league's cup. If you win your shootout, it's two points instead of the one point, right? Am oh, I correct? We did not oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. Uh, yeah, Joe broke it down really well. Uh, I, I think. Uh, I didn't really have this until I started researching this question, but I, I would say that you can categorize US WNT managers, the permanent managers, along basically into three categories. I think there are legends, then I think there are successes, and then I think that there are failures. The legends I would point to would be Anson Dorrance, won the 91 World Cup, uh, kind of put the US women's national team on the map or helped uh, solidify the program. Tony DeChico, legend number two, takes over in 94. Uh, goes until 1999, wins the 99 World Cup, the 96 Olympics, has the highest percentage of any US, USWNT manager. Uh, 105 games won out of 121 is a ridiculous number. But there you go, Tony DeChico. And then Jill Ellis winning two World Cups back-to-back. I would say that puts her into the Legends status. In terms of successes, I would have April Heinrichs on there. Second most matches managed behind Jill Ellis. She won Olympic gold. Uh, also silver and then bronze at the 2003 World Cup. So you win the Olympic gold, but you don't have a successful World Cup. I'm going to say that's an okay balance. And Pia Suntaga the same. Uh, she won Olympic gold twice, but then they lose the final in 2011 to Japan. Step down after winning the Olympics, though. So it's gold medal, uh, runner-up at the World Cup, gold medal. Then she steps down. And I think she is closer to the Legends category, uh, but I would put her in that second tier. And then... In terms of failures, I would say Tom Sermani is on that list. Greg Ryan, despite having, I believe, the second highest winning percentage of any U.S. women's national team manager, um, it's largely because, I think, of that loss to Brazil in the semifinals uh, when he benches Hope Solo, who brings in Brianna Scurry. He makes defensive changes, and it feels like the program is moving in the wrong direction. I would say Tom Sermani, uh, to Joe's point from what I was reading, uh, one unofficial source at the time uh, from the team said he offered no direction, no vision, nothing. Um, he constantly toyed with lineups, formations, and styles of play, something that could have bothered a team with many veterans who had past success and may have been resistant to change. I'm sensing a pattern there with this present national team under Vlatko Andonovsky, who I think inherited a team that was very successful but had a lot of established veterans. And maybe he was about keeping those veterans happy, keeping the morale up, keeping the energy high, which was the thing that uh, many players have talked about. Jill Ellis, maybe not doing as much, maybe making an overly competitive locker room. And so there wasn't as much satisfaction within the team. So it feels like Vlatko went the other direction, but then didn't get the results on the pitch to back that up. And so I would I would put him very firmly in that failures category. In some ways, the other managers still like had bigger runs or had less time. Like Tom Stramani, I think only has what 16 months in charge. So for Vlatko to have two unsuccessful tournaments is somewhat unheralded when it comes to the women's national team. Uh, so I'm definitely putting him in that third category. Yeah. Tom Sermani, I'm just looking through my phone to see if I still have his number <laughs> weirdly. Cause he, uh, he was someone, I got a good amount of work out of Tom Sermani. He was, he, he worked as the, the USWNT head coach around the time I was starting to do some work around American soccer. So I did speak to him a, a few times. It was a weird crossover for me with him being a Scot, obviously, and me being interested in American soccer. So the Scottish newspapers would, would take, would take interview features with him. So he's good for work for me, but not so good for the USWNT. So he was the first person my mind went to straight away for the reasons that um, you mentioned there, Taylor, not a lot of direction from Tom Sermani. By all accounts, I think a, a fairly 
popular figure. I mean, talking to him, he was always he was always a nice guy to to speak to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he is he is canned before the US got to a World Cup, so I guess the Vlatko comparison falls down a little bit there. Uh, Greg Ryan, I thought as well, seemed to be a, a, a decent comparison. He mm-hmm. had a similar amount of games to Vlatko. He was in the job for two to three years, I believe, so that's similar to Vlatko as well. He was criticised for his subs at the 2007 World Cup, where the US underperformed. Um, but also at that time, so obviously there's a comparison there with Vlatko, slightly different in that people criticised the the personnel of the subs that that Ryan made rather than Vlatko just not making any subs and completely forgetting that his bench was there at all but also another comparison was at that time the the US seemed to be straddling two generations between the team of kind of the late 90s and the the early 2000s and and then kind of a newer younger generation with the likes of Heather O'Reilly and and, and Carly Lloyd fairly young Carly Carly Lloyd I think was about 24 at that time but nonetheless, um, yeah, there seems to be a decent comparison there between Greg Ryan and Vlatko as well. The only other manager I had, which is on the men's side, uh, so that could be controversial in and of itself, there was a a slight comparison in my mind to Carlo Ancelotti when he takes over for Bayern Munich, that uh, Bayern, after, when he takes them over, are coming off of Pep Guardiola, who wins uh, pretty much everything, or as close to everything, uh, without actually winning the Champions League, I guess, but is just this sort of all-encompassing figure, has the team playing the way he wants, has this very demanding style, but also isn't necessarily beloved within the team, uh, is the impression that I always got. So Ancelotti comes in and is a player's coach and sort of empowers the individual and training is way less rigorous and demanding and way less intense and competitive and more about building those vibes, learning how to play together, learning how to play off of each other. And that works, but it also quickly starts to be an area of concern. And you had players publicly talking about how training sessions weren't demanding enough, how they weren't getting enough instruction. They didn't understand what was being asked of them or how to execute certain game plans. And so I think of a manager in Ancelotti who is perceived as being a very good manager, and, and I would say is a very good manager, but also has a lot of the players' manager sort of tag about him, that players love playing for him. That feels to be what the consensus was when Andonovsky is hired, uh, but then inherits a team that have had successes, maybe want more positivity than they do want a ton of instruction. And then also there's that generational divide that Graham talked about. It's a tricky situation he inherited, and I think he did his best to navigate the personalities aspect of it. I think less so the on-field stuff for sure, uh, specifically yeah, the tactics, the substitutions, mm. and even just kind of making, I think, big decisions and dropping key players or or not relying on certain veteran players. I, I think now in retrospect that Julie Ertz was sort of the savior of this team coming in, the potential savior because no one else could do that role. At the time, I thought, oh, we got Julie Ertz back. We've been waiting for her to come back. Now she's back. We're going to be good to go. And I see it in a different lens with the way this tournament went of maybe that should have been a warning sign that we're going back to players who haven't played or haven't been in the team in hopes that we can recapture some of that glory. And then he doesn't even use her in the position where we felt like she was indispensable. So I think a lot of things go wrong along the way for Blackco. Mm-hmm. So Taylor is comparing Vlatko to Carlo Ancelotti, one of the most successful <laughs> club managers of all time. Specifically at Bayern Munich. And even there, he won silverware. So Have you got exactly. his number on your phone as well, Greg? No, no, no. Don Carlo has not uh, messaged me yet. I'm going to be a little less kind than comparing Vlatko to, to Ancelotti. I see a bit of Phil Neville in Vlatko. Phil Neville, by the way, must just be sat in a darkened room at the moment because if he turned on his TV, he'd see England, the Lionesses, and Inter Miami becoming really good as soon as they sat Graham. him. 
again. Grand so that's the, the, the worst part of this. Yep. Yeah. He's on the desk for Apple doing Lee's Cup analysis. I don't know if he's done any Miami games yet. I kind of doubt it. Um, but yeah, that is a real thing. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess he can put that on his CV on his resume as well. Yeah. But we, with England, we all see the, obviously with Inter Miami, they've, they've signed a guy I've heard pretty good. I think that might have made a bit of a difference yeah, for Inter Diego Miami. Gomez. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nailed it, Joe. Um, but yeah, with guys. England, we, we, with England, we all see the, the talent that England had under Neville. It's pretty much kind of the same group of players, a couple youngsters that weren't there under, under Neville. But they just lacked any sort of framework when he was when he was the the Lionesses coach. He was, I believe, relatively popular with the group of players, but just just not a good enough coach. And then another um, looking to the men's game here, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is is someone that popped into my mind. I I, I kind of defend Solskjaer a little bit in that he's not the worst of the post Ferguson uh, Manchester United appointments. It's a low bar, admittedly, but it seems like. Not such a great tactician, not much of a framework. They're all about empowering players, empowering the individual. Um, so I can kind of see a comparison there with Lacko I think, as well. I think that's a great one, Graham. I think of the three on the men's side, I think that's probably the best one because I- he does seem to be a very like vibes, bringing back the tradition, like, and then we're just going to win and be the dominant force we've been in the past. What are tactics? Do we need to defend? I don't understand. Yeah, I'm uh, with you. Uh, the, uh, the court enters Frank Lampard into the uh, yeah. records as well. Well, it's, it's hard. Thing- it's hard with it's hard with Lampard and Solskjaer. To be honest, those teams weren't really at the top of their game, right? Mm-hmm. Like Manchester United under Solskjaer, at that point, we're in Man City, Liverpool territory, baby. And the same thing kind of goes for Frank Lampard. It's really hard to find like a perfect comparison at the top European club level because of how um, separated like the top is, even from like the next to the top tier teams. The one that came to mind for me, and this is not a permanent one, but just is, uh, is Hansi Flick with Germany at the 2022 World Cup. It's the second World Cup in a row that Germany don't make it out of the group stage. There's talent. I, I would say Germany are roughly the equivalent of where the U.S. women are on the women's side now, just in that top tier of teams that nobody would really bat an eye if they won a tournament, and they did not do that. One thing I think is also interesting about this conversation is that we go to the men's side of the game. I think to, if we're being candid, it's because that's where we have more familiarity with some of the coaches in the yeah. history. But I also think because if we're talking about on the women's side, a program that has had massive amounts of success in winning World Cups, but then like doesn't really achieve that that level of expectation the next iteration. I don't know how many examples there are like what the U.S. has won the most by far, then Germany has two, right? And then it's Norway has one, Japan has one. I don't know how much, like, uh, how many good examples there are of national teams on the women's side that have been dominant and then had this massive downturn. I'm sure they're out there, but I think it's it really is looking at the United States. And so, and you and you look at kind of the way the coaching has gone, like it's Anson Dorrance, it's Tony DeChico, Lauren Gregg has three games as an interim manager, and then it's April Heinrichs. So maybe the best example is somebody like Greg Ryan, who comes in, wins 45 out of 55, has, as I said, the second highest winning percentage. Vlatko, Joe, you're right, doesn't have the high, like a particularly high one compared to a lot of the more recent successes, but I think does win enough games he wins 51 of 65 but you look at some of the teams they're playing 
I don't know how much we're going to count. I, I don't know, like some of the massive, the the 4-0 and the 4-0 over Mexico. Those both count as right. wins, but I don't know how much we learned from those. 9-0 and 8-0 over Paraguay. I don't know how much we learned from those. So those count as wins, but I wouldn't say those are evidence that the program was evolving or learning that much. So maybe it's looking within the program and maybe it's Greg Ryan is the best sort of example of uh, a person taking over from a successful program and then not maybe living up to the hype. All right. Thank you very much, Trevor, for the question. When we come back after this break, we're going to look at Inter-Miami and the things they're doing that are interesting. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. We go now to a question from Phil Doucette, who says, how is Miami able to spend the way they are given league spending caps? More directly, are they breaking cap rules to acquire Messi and co with the league simply looking the other way? Uh, Joe, as simply as you can, can you sort of give us the overview? <laughs> who are the DPs? Is Blaise Matuidi still one of them? How, how are they doing this? Good luck, Joe. Yes. Yeah, all right. So I'm going to do the best I can and try not to talk for 12 minutes here. So I'm going to try to get this done in like two or three minutes. 
So I want to start with the foundation. Actually, let's skip to the end. I'll start and say <laughs> I'm skeptical. Perfect. I'm skeptical that Inter Miami have done this in a way that is compliant with MLS roster rules. Yep. I'll, I'll be honest. I don't really care about that, whether or not they've complied, because the, the rules are, are silly. Some of them are helpful. And I think maintaining a rough range of what teams can spend with certain levers they can pull to go over that makes sense and avoids things being so predictable like they are in Europe. And, and as someone who really does enjoy Major League Soccer, that is something that I like about this league and something that I think adds real value as MLS will continue to grow and become a larger player in the global soccer landscape. So I'll start and say I'm skeptical, particularly about two things. And Tom Bogart had a recent article about this that really breaks it down very well for The Athletic. Go and read that. I think it came out last week. Uh, the two things he highlighted as being sources, being skeptical about Rodolfo Pizarro, uh, who was a designated player, just sort of like disappearing and being in Greece now. And then Jordi Alba coming in as a non-designated player. Ryan, the three DPs for Inter Miami right now, according to Tom, because there has not been a lot of clarity around this, is Messi, <laughs> Sergio Busquets, and Gregore, who is a, a central midfielder who's been out. That's why you haven't seen him play with Messi yet. To quickly break this down. MLS has a salary cap. This year, it's about $5.2 million. This number governs the amount of money a team is allowed to spend each season on salaries and transfer fees, which are spread over the life of a contract. Not too complicated so far, not a foreign concept for American sports teams. But it's not a hard and fast salary cap. There are a few ways to infuse high-level talent into a team like Miami have done this year and like teams all across the league do. Everybody's taking advantage of these mechanisms to different degrees. The first and most high-profile way of getting a really good player in your team without blowing all of your salary cap space is with designated players. A team can spend as much money as they want on a transfer fee and salary for a DP, and they only count for a set, relatively low amount on the salary cap. For Miami, they added Busquets and Messi this summer, and no transfer fees for either of those players. They can be making a billion dollars each, and it does not matter. It does not impact what they actually show on the salary cap. Now, in order to get those players in... Miami had to make some moves. They had to use allocation money, which is something that lets you basically impact what a player's salary budget charge is on the salary cap. They had to use allocation money to, to basically buy down how much Leo Campana, who was a DP before, how much he shows on the cap. And I can tell I'm losing my co-host, so I'm guessing I'm losing my audience too. But that's the <laughs> idea so far. They get rid of Leo Campana as a DP. He then opens up a slot, and then they let Pizarro go walk to Greece by a mutual contract agreement. Taylor has his hand up. Yes, Taylor. Joe, you are not losing me, I promise. If anything, I'm just more confused because I think it's also been reported that uh, Grigori, whose name I'm still not fully confident I'm saying correctly, was the one paid down. He And then there's reported that he is not the DP, but that yeah. Leonardo Campagna is a young DP, which allows them to make more signings. And to your point, this is where it all gets very hazy very quickly and probably doesn't help with the feeling that maybe something shady is afoot. Yeah, 1,000%. I think Inter-Miami's roster page either has or still lists Campana as a DP. And again, I don't have insight into this. I'm going off of what Tom Bogert has reported. And I'll, I'll trust Tom over anybody else in this space Fair. doing this stuff. So it is, it is a wild world. So anyway, I got lost a little bit in the sauce there. They added the DPs. That makes sense, right? I don't think there's a lot really that you can you can have a gripe with if you're an, uh, a rival MLS GM. You might not like how they got rid of Pizarro, which I do think is a, a genuinely fair point. But the DP stuff kind of takes care of itself in some ways. Another way you can add talent is with the U22 initiative. And teams can have up to three of these players. They're really valuable because their transfer fees aren't forced into their budget charges. So you can pay a ton of money for a really good young player, and their cap hit is going to be a lot lower, and, and how they impact your budget is not going to be the same 
as any other player in this uh, in this league. So Miami went out and paid big fees for Facundo Farias, who's a winger, Thomas Aviles, who's a center back, and Diego Gomez, who's a central midfielder. Really, the only other piece of the puzzle, and I have talked for long enough, this was not two minutes, and I apologize, <laughs> is Jordi Alba, who is not a designated player, which means he's not making, well, he's making more than any of us, we'll put it that way, but he's not making, like, <laughs> DP money, which is difficult to believe. Uh, I think it's difficult for folks inside of Major League Soccer to believe. Uh, he's just chilling, I guess, making less than $1.6 million or whatever that number is. So He's that on vacation one, with his mates. That's basically yeah. what he's doing in Miami. I, I suppose. I suppose. So that one is – it is genuinely hard to believe that that has worked out in such a way for Miami. I know Barcelona are still paying him a little bit of money. But that and Pizarro just kind of fading into the background to open up a DP slot, those are the areas that have gathered some criticism from folks around Major League Soccer. So yeah. to go I mean, back I, to I, Phil's question, Graham, sorry to jump in, but like he's saying, are the league simply looking the other way in this instance? The confusion, the subterfuge and the lack of clarity here does suggest maybe not looking the other way, but deliberately not making this clear. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to alert the, the fire truck of lawyers or anything here, but it wouldn't surprise me if Inter Miami are um, being creative, shall we say? That was actually a term used by Don Garber himself when talking about the process of luring Messi to MLS was that there was a willingness to get creative. Now, I think he was talking largely about the kind of Apple TV deal and, and any kind of Adidas revenue sharing in the contract that Messi has, has, has signed to. But nonetheless, it does add to a, a layer of suspicion. But honestly, I think this whole chat just proves that this league is ready to loosen the purse strings and to make this whole process of signing players easily. Beckham's arrival in MLS, which is obviously the 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 best comparison that we have for MLS, for Messi coming to MLS, that prompted all sorts of changes in terms of how teams could spend money. It's where the DP rule comes from. For a while, I remember people calling that the Beckham rule for a, for a few seasons. And I think Messi and MLS should do something similar. I agree with Joe. I understand why the, the rules are in place and, and the balance and the parity of MLS is one of the attractions of the league, but it also feels like the league has been held back at this point. So I would I would quite like these sorts of discussions to be consigned to history because it's just all too confusing and frankly I don't understand it. And as someone whose entire life is soccer and like my job to talk about it, if I don't understand it then there's a good chance that casual fans don't understand it as well. Yeah, I think that's the key issue here, Graham. It is a lack of transparency as well. If I go on into Miami's website, I'd like to see who their DP players are like on their roster page. And I'd like to, you know, it's very transparent about player salaries, for example. So why not completely transparent about the cap in this instance and whatnot? So, yeah, uh, some changes afoot, perhaps, based on this, Graham. Yeah, it just also stems transfer chat. Like, transfer speculation in European soccer is a sport in its own right, essentially. Now now we can debate whether that's a good thing or not, but it does draw eyeballs and, and it, it, it attracts fans to the league and it keeps people talking about the league. And MLS, I feel like, unless it's messy or a big name, doesn't really have that to the same extent because nobody knows if people... I mean, you always see it with British media, British newspapers, tabloids getting caught out linking up a player to a team that doesn't have a DP slot and they don't they don't know that, which is always a little bit funny. They've been caught out in that regard, but still, it needs um, simplification. In 
indeed. All right, Phil, thank you very much for that question. Simplification seems like a tall order at this point, I'll add, Graham. But uh, we'll see. Uh, Richard Rolson has come with a question uh, MLS-related. Do you think this iteration of Leagues Cup between MLS and Liga MX has been successful? Do you think for the tournament to become a successful competition going ahead, will it need to have some matches played in Mexico as well? We have the final Joe of the competition coming up this weekend as we record Nashville taking on into Miami on Saturday evening. Uh, a friend of the show who's likely listening uh, messaged me to say they paid $625 for a standing room ticket for this one. The messy effect. Or is it the League's Cup effect, Joe? Mm. <laughs> That's the question, right? Uh, it, it's the messy effect, first of all, in terms of the recent boost in, in popularity for this competition. Inter-Miami owner Jorge Mas tweeted that subscribers to MLS Season Pass more than doubled since Messi joined Inter-Miami. He's only played in League's Cup so far, so there clearly has been a boost in viewership for League's Cup. Are we sure they're not obvi- subscribing for Phil Neville? I'm, it, I think that's a You know what, Graham? Joke. I won't dare to rule it out. I know Doyle's been on the desk with him, and I, it, honestly, I'd watch that 10 times out of 10. So <laughs> I have no complaints about that whole situation, but... Obviously Doyle this takes down Phil Neville live on air. <laughs> Subscribe, £10 from a, a month. <laughs> from a weirdly tall chair. Yep, that sounds about right. It, it's not just tied to League's <laughs> Cup, right? There, there are other things that are driving Reed Messi attention to Major League Soccer right now. I, I will say, and I know I'm going to have a very different viewpoint on this than any of the rest of you. For me, as an American soccer fan who's probably way more dialed into this stuff than any sane person would be or should be, I think this has been a massive success from an entertainment standpoint. I don't know what the numbers are. I don't know if Messi hadn't come to League's Cup and come to Miami, how this tournament would have done. But, I mean, it has been really good TV. You set all the Messi stuff aside, which is hard to do given that he has lived up to every bit of hype you could have ever asked for so far in Major League Soccer. You set that aside. Monterey coming back late against LAFC. A super late, I think it was 100th minute, so 10th minute of second half stoppage time winner for Philly over Carretaro. Nashville stopping Club America on penalty kicks and then beating Monterey in the semifinals to play Inter-Miami in the final. 16 rounds of penalty kicks between Lyon and Vancouver. Like, just, the, the games have been good. I believe there was only one scoreless draw in the entire group stage. Like, there, there was a lot to like from an entertainment standpoint here. You've got Nahuel Guzman, Tigres goalkeeper, doing magic tricks and miming during penalty kick shootouts, like raccoons falling through RSL's press box. Really good atmospheres. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I need more information on you that heard last that. one. Yeah. Raccoon- I don't really have any more information. That's what happened. Apparently, the you, raccoon was fine and was like a real back into the wild. Yeah, like yes, a, a real raccoon. Right. Yes. Yeah, they stole yes. DC wow. United's branding, which is unacceptable. Correct. Joe, Joe, to be All fair. Right, lives on. Yeah, right. To be fair to Graham, you did sort of say those in quick succession, so it sounded like <laughs> maybe the magic tricks played a part in the raccoon falling uh, through the ceiling. I can't rule which that would out, be, Taylor. Which I'm would be bigger news. Big if true. Big if true. Mm. If we're manifesting raccoons out of nowhere, uh, suddenly a goalkeeper becomes more in demand in my mind. I, I think Those it's possible. Definitely related. I think it's possible. So <laughs> all that to say, for an American soccer fan or for a Mexican soccer fan, and, and with Messi, I think that obviously becomes a broader market. I think it's pretty hard to argue that this wasn't a great spectacle or isn't a great spectacle ahead of the final. I don't think it's perfect, and I, I, I'm going to shut up and hear your guys' thoughts now. But as far as a year one with this now expanded format goes, if you're Major League Soccer and League Mekis, it's hard to imagine this having gone much better. Yeah, I'm now imagining this. I'm now imagining the pitch from MLS to Apple, who, as we all know, are very, like, clean-cut, very surgical sort of company. MLS are like, League's Cup, we've got magic goalkeepers, we've got flying raccoons. <laughs> like, 
that's the that's the league's cup uh, the league's cup pitch i mean I, I i have barely watched any of it due to the women's world cup i did i did um i did watch the philadelphia into miami game the other night and that was fun but i do think mls and league's cup has has got a little bit lucky because that game was very much like the beat messy cup semi-final like that's how it kind of felt philadelphia fans were booing them which i, I kind of I kind of like that, you know. I don't think they're doing it out of any malice, but it was it was sort of like, can we be the first team to to beat Lionel Messi playing for a, for a US team? But I still think my opinion hasn't really changed that to be truly successful, League's Cup needs to have a clearer purpose. I think they've got a bit lucky this year because it has been the Messi Cup, and that has been enough to draw eyeballs that might not have been drawn to this competition. But once that fades twelve months from now, I do wonder how League's Cup will position itself because I don't. I don't know if you win League's Cup, I don't know what that signifies. And it kind of reminds me of the Super League where I always thought, and I'm not saying I wanted this to happen, but I always thought they would have been more successful if they'd gone even bigger, if they just said, we're leaving the domestic leagues to set up our own thing. And instead it was basically another Champions League. And League's Cup has that problem with the the CONCACAF Champions League or whatever it's called now. What is it called now? The Champions Cup or something like that. CCC, um, so CCC, exactly. Mm-hmm. So to give it any real purpose, it needs clubs, in my opinion, to treat it more seriously than the the CCC, as it's now called. Otherwise, it will always have, maybe not an exhibition feel, but it'll always have that kind of half competitive feel like the Community Shield or something like that. I think yeah. some matches in Mexico would be nice. Yeah. But yeah, that, that clearer purpose is the main objective it needs to achieve. I think it's hard to get a clearer purpose because it is ultimately like the U.S. League versus the Mexican League. Who doesn't want to see those two clash? Uh, I think the idea that what the top three finishers in the League's Cup qualify for the Champions Cup, that is maybe meant to be an extra motivation. But I think the way you get teams playing more competitively, more aggressively is to probably balance it and have more games in Mexico. And maybe you, you let the top however many teams be the host team. And then you play the group stage games in that one host city. And so there's less travel. There's less jet lag. That seems to have been a consistent complaint for a lot of Liga Mekis teams that they're going to places where the team in LAFC, for example, who has been home for all their games and haven't had to travel as much. And so there were complaints there about we've been on the road. We've been traveling. It's an immediate uh, negative to our competitiveness and when it's in the middle of the season there is this feeling that players are sort of like yeah we just got to get through this and then we'll get back to the regular season to then get back to the playoffs so I think anything you can do away from adding more money or I don't know making it you then qualify for the European Champions League I don't know how much that sort of thing is going to motivate players as much as make it more equitable in terms of where it's being played and the games being played and, and and sort of try to balance it in that way so that you get more teams or more players just having the energy to take it seriously or the enthusiasm to do so. I think it, in terms of Rich's question about having more games played in Mexico, Taylor, I think we'd like that for, from a competitive viewpoint and maybe from an equitability viewpoint mm. as well. But ultimately, it does feel like that wouldn't happen because MLS and North American property would want to protect the uh, the financial side of things well, and keep things domestic. Is that fair? And I think there's another part of this is Liga Mekis wanting games in the United States yep. to give them right. a, a more direct tie to a huge market. It's already huge mm-hmm. for them, but they're they're not stupid. Like they recognize how much bigger that could be. I, I mean, Liga MX is the most popular soccer league in the United States, right? Why not try to really lengthen that lead? as MLS really does expand. So uh, that's, for me, the biggest obstacle to us seeing games in Mexico is, is not necessarily 
Major League yeah. Soccer. It, it, it might be Liga Mekis wanting to keep games here. I hope that doesn't happen. And I hope they recognize that for the sake of the competition and the competitive side, you do need a bit more balance. And I would like to see more games. I would like to see any games in Mexico in the next version. I think there are kinks to be worked out of this. Um, and, and that's probably the first one on the list. Joe, Tata Martino's rant about this one w- was pretty great, if you didn't see it, of him basically being like, this was CONCACAF's decision. Liga Mekis had the right to say, like, no, we want to host games. They didn't do that. They wanted the money, and so here we are when you're playing in the U.S. It's a big country. There's going to be some drawbacks to having to travel yeah. across that big country. <laughs> so I like Tata Martino laying it down a little bit. Maybe also uh, venting some frustration with the Mexican Federation at the same time. Yeah. We always we all have that friend. We all have that friend who never invites you round to their house. They always meet you at a bar <laughs> or come round to your house. That's Liga Mekis. <laughs> right. I love that, Graham. <laughs> That's a good analogy. On that note, Graham, thank you, Richard, for that question. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, a few more back shortly. Total Soccer Show. Welcome back to our listener questions. Ben Sundstrom's been in touch. And has a hypothetical for us, Joe. Woo! MLS decides to expand to two 20-club leagues, MLS East and MLS West. With San San Diego's expansion pending, five spots remain in each league. Which cities would you award the remaining franchises? Would that improve MLS? And could MLS even support 40 clubs? Um, So, Joe, are we all just going to vouch for the cities that we like or that we think are going to be the best ones possibly for uh expansion i'm gonna no, you know vegas, what i'm gonna, vegas, I'm gonna start off. you're gonna put forward vegas aren't you That's i am gonna put forward pick. vegas i am gonna put forward <laughs> vegas because i think it would be awesome but my first pick joe honolulu just Say for it. the travel chaos oh very good we could do honolulu and anchorage and get some put real, in some the real east. chaos going put them in the east <laughs> <laughs> before before i i name my cities i do want to ask like how would this work 40 teams. I don't understand. Poorly is the answer, Joe. Poorly is the answer. I, I genuinely, I thought about this for a long time. I can't think of a way to do this without having MLS 1 and MLS 2, which I don't think is ever going to happen. And I want to underscore ever. Not that I don't want it to, to be very clear, but I don't think MLS will ever adopt any form of promotion or relegation. I hope to be wrong on that front. But how do you do 40 teams? Like 20 teams in each side? It, the schedule's yeah. already comically unbalanced as it is. Do you just yeah. keep the same format and pretend that like, it's not ridiculous that the two teams that meet in the final. That's what they already did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's but the same I guess thing. it gets it gets magnet. It gets so much worse as you go and add more teams. It gets more and more. It's farcical a word. I'm going to make it a word if it's yeah. not. I I just I hate it. I really don't like it. Yeah, I think I think the only way you could do it if you expanded to 40 would be to do something like most other professional leagues in North America or in the United States, where you have conferences or divisions or whatever it is and you've got different teams in those that you play everybody multiple times and then maybe you play one other division exactly so you end up not playing every single team in the league over the course of a season that's the only other way i could see them doing it short of having mls1 and mls2 and i think right there you sort of limit the appeal i mean you build up regional rivalries for sure and it becomes maybe a more special occasion when you do get to play certain teams, but I'm pretty sure every team will be annoyed that they are no longer playing Inter Miami and Lionel Messi. I could see yeah. that being an issue right away. Yeah, I, I I just can't think of a great way to do this. I, I don't like any of the potential options. And Taylor, all of all the things you proposed are viable technically. I just, yeah, they're just exactly. Not, they're just not good. Yeah. So that's that's a problem. <laughs> I think from a talent perspective, like talent wise. 
you can do 40 teams. Like, MLS has barely scratched the surface on good soccer players that can come in and play in Major League Soccer. There's so much talent in the world. That's not a problem. I think MLS, infrastructure-wise and, and talent-wise, in terms of roster spots and development, all that stuff, you can do that fairly easily if given enough time. But yeah, competition-wise, I don't like it. I will quickly rattle through my cities and then see what other folks have to say. San Diego, out west, that one's already happening. Phoenix, duh, offended that you didn't say it first, Ryan, but that's cool. We'll still be yeah. friends even if I'm not going to be your list. adopted son. Las Vegas is a no-brainer. And then, again, I think all these are actually our USL championship markets already. Sacramento, Albuquerque, and San Antonio are my teams that make it to 20 teams in the west. <gasps> Albuquerque. I'm just envisaging yeah. the Isotopes collab yes. possibilities. Their, their, yes, their mascot could be Hungry Hungry Homer. Oh, yeah, I'm on board with that one. Now. <laughs> what, what are your, Graham, what are your West teams? Vegas, Phoenix. Phoenix is on my list, Joe, Thank to you. make you happy. I presume oh. it'll be a floating stadium in Phoenix. Uh, Sacramento, mainly just because I feel sorry for them at this point. Uh, San Francisco, I know San Jose is right there, but uh, I liked San Francisco when I visited, and I am picking places that I would like to visit one day. And let's put Albuquerque on there now. Sure, they're yes. on my west list. For I am the mayor of Albuquerque. What an episode, Graham. Um, I, I think I've got a lot of similar cities to you guys as well. Basically, if you just look at a lot of the big met- metropolitan areas that don't have a team already, it is Vegas, it's Phoenix, San Antonio, I think is a good pick, Joe. Detroit, I mean, obviously good soccer culture there. Raleigh, because uh, if you look at the Carolinas and the soccer there, which I know firsthand is a big deal, um, they had a, arguably a bigger claim to an MLS team before the one arrived in Charlotte, but they didn't have someone with $18 billion in their pocket. And of course, Honolulu. That's uh, on them. Which folks. Is, mm. That's on them. Nantucket <laughs> as well should be on that. On <laughs> uh, Taylor, that will you yeah. tell us why Virginia should be uh, getting a, a team in a, a little old town called Richmond at some point? Now we're good. I, I like I like the kickers. I like the kickers where they are. Uh, short of a new like a new ownership group and a lot more money, I like the current ownership group, but I don't think they are positioned to be an MLS team. Nor honestly, nor do I want the pressure of feeling like we got to sell that stadium out every single weekend, or we're the team that doesn't have yeah. fans in attendance. I think that is part of it. Is you've got to generate the interest right away, and I think MLS has done a good job of building that enthusiasm in the cities they've selected. If you go to forty real quick. It's going to be tough to get every single market uh, at that level where you've got sold out stadiums from day one. Taylor, I've never related to you more as a football fan than I, I did just there, where Ryan essentially <laughs> like, offered nah. you success and yeah. you went, no thanks. No yeah, thanks. that's basically my stance. I mean, soccer. Richmond's self-relegated in a system that doesn't have relegation. So that tells you uh, how, <laughs> how things were going. They're much better these days. Uh, but I would add, uh, I had Detroit in the East. I would add yep. Pittsburgh. I had yep. Raleigh. I would add Louisville. I think one thing yep. MLS could do more of is looking at cities that don't already have professional franchises or maybe only have the one like the that top tier uh louisville obviously has it on on the women's side but don't have any other like top tier professional sports otherwise and i think that would be a very good market where they could expand so i looked at other ones like maybe oklahoma city is one of those where that where they could expand that's in the, the west. middle bit where are you putting them <laughs> what, what do you mean you just flip a coin like, Graham. Well, you just send is, it back this is one of the things like sh- ah east or west i see what you mean yeah yes, yes, and yes. this is uh, one of the Graham? things i struggled with was mm-hmm. mls central is the answer yeah. Okay. Yep. <laughs> right. There we go. Yeah. That's one of the things I struggled with was working out what's east and what's west because America is See, confusing like that. And you, Taylor, you sent me a TikTok video on this very subject yes, like last week. <laughs> like Miami, as the the man in that video pointed out, Miami is in the south, it's, but it's, it's not a southern city. It's Explain tropi- that one to I love, me. I love that he he lands on it's tropical northeast is my favorite <laughs> classification. Uh, Graham, that's where the NFL has it right. That's where if we did break this down into conferences, we would just have. 
east, west, and then north and south. And you can sort of divide accordingly, though you still get some confusing ones in there because I believe Indianapolis is in the AFC South or maybe then the AFC North. I forget how it breaks down. You still get a few strange ones along the way, but for the most part, it works. I think they're in the South. I think my, okay. my past NFL knowledge tells me they're in the South. Yeah, I, I, AFC I, North I wanna, is definitely not them. Yes, you are correct. I yeah. want to mm-hmm. just very quickly uh, apologize to any and all USL Championship fans that are listening that very much do not enjoy Major League Soccer. Uh, I, all of the cities that are on my list basically are mm-hmm. USL Championship cities, and I think uh, deserve credit in their own right for what they've created. Right, Louisville is the one that comes to mind for me first. Mm-hmm. Like That stadium... Okay, the broadcast angle is atrocious. Let's just be honest. It's terrible on TV. But the stadium looks beautiful. I would love to make it out there someday. It is impressive what these markets have created and what the ownership groups and fans and everything have built in in the second division. Louisville is a great example of that. Phoenix is a good example. Detroit. like in, in, You can go down the list, basically, of all the cities, most of them that we named. And they do deserve a lot of credit. It, it also is true that as MLS continues to expand... There may be overlap, and we've seen that in St. Louis. We'll see it in San Diego. We've seen it before. Like There, there are going to be more and more challenges in terms of how these leagues exist, and I, I just hope that it doesn't basically put fans out of their fandom because what already exists in so many of these places is really, really cool. A, a that sounds very much like a, an MLS puppet trying to hide the strings there. You can tell, uh, <laughs> Don, you can tell Uncle Don that you did your job. <laughs> Marionette Lowry at it again. Very good. Um, but a, a solution, Joe, that wouldn't affect the current soccer cities. Uh, we could take a, a leaf out of the NFL book and maybe do start doing London games for the MLS. And then eventually as a London team in the MLS, we could call them MLS London. Something Genuinely, I think like that. That, that might draw. I think there's a chance that might draw. I don't know for L- sure. If we just pretend London that they're Orlando's SC. team. London SC. London <laughs> Orlando. Everybody loves oh, Orlando. Chaos. We can do this. <laughs> London Soccer Club. That would go down London storm. City Soccer Club. Let's be yes. real. <laughs> there we go. All right. I think we've nailed it there. Uh, we've, we've gone long on this episode. We've got, I think we've answered fewer than we usually would, but we've had a lovely time trying to explain what Inter Miami are doing. Uh, but we'll have plenty more <laughs> questions answered in next week's Listen to Questions. And, of course, on our Patreon, we'll uh, tackle a few more as well. But for now, Joe Lowry, I'm exhausted after that one. Congratulations, sir. Oh, same. I honestly have no clue what I said in the Miami part. I don't know if any of it was right or any of it was delivered in a way that was understandable, but it's over now, and I guess that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, we'll just all hide under a pile of coats until it's all blown over, to quote the uh, Simpsons, and uh, as we do, Graham. As we do. Graham, thank you very much indeed for joining us here. Thank you, Ryan Bailey, a.k.a. the mayor of Albuquerque, I think is your new title. <laughs> What an episode. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much indeed for your services to listen to questioning. Kirky for life, baby. Kirky for life. <laughs> Hang on. The, just uh, to get into real world, the Isotopes was an actual team in Albuquerque. Oh, as they're well, a real right? team, yeah. I yeah. think they're, they still are, yeah. I think right. I think they they had one, and then I believe any given Sunday, uh, Al Pacino's character goes t- is leaving to manage the expansion Albuquerque franchise. So they seem to be a city that gets a lot of fictional teams, Albuquerque. Okay, I was watching uh, Better Call Saul, the most recent season, and the, the the isotopes were involved in that. I was like, have they just invented this for the show, or is it a real team? I had to look it up, because I'm dumb. Anyway, that's enough about me. Listener, thank you very much indeed for joining us on this intrepid Listener Question journey. We'll be back on the feed, as always, very soon. But for now, bye! Bye! 